0: They're always using all of this sort of poetic language about the transformative power of space. And, you know, we're all cynical journalists and we're kind of rolling our eyes and going, yeah, yeah, okay." But then they they did it. And the space is transformative. And you start to see people behave differently. And you're like, ah, there's there's something to this.
1: Newsrooms used to be bustling, cavernous and cluttered. Great for putting out a daily paper, but not ideal for fostering collaboration and improving employee morale. But don't worry, The Modern Newsroom is undergoing a tectonic shift for the better. I'm Michael O'Connell, and this is It's All Journalism. Today we're going to be talking about space. Not space as in spaceships and planets, but innovative newsroom spaces. Dana Kester is a professor at the Reed College of Media Innovation Center at West Virginia University. She's written for the American Press Institute about designing newsrooms for new digital practices. Welcome to the podcast, Dana.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So before we get going here, I wanted to thank the American Press Institute for helping us to set up this interview. We're we're hoping to collaborate more in the future with API, who are good people who care about journalism and want to help make it better. So to start off with, how did you get interested in the changing design of newsrooms?
0: Well, prior to researching this report, I actually spent a couple of years working closely with architects to help design an innovation center at our College of Media here at WVU. Because the center needed to reflect and anticipate changes in journalism practice, and we wanted to sort of replicate what was happening in the industry. We spent about two years visiting innovative newsrooms, other innovation spaces, visiting, you know, the big technology companies like Google and Facebook to get inspiration for how to design the space that would feed, meet our needs. And that just sort of helped me sort of see what was happening in all of these sort of newsroom innovation and technology spaces.
1: So what type of places did you go to? What newsrooms did you visit?
0: We um, visited the Washington Post. Actually, this was prior to their renovation, so that was really helpful because I was able to see them in their transition phase and some of the sort of jerry-rigging they'd done in anticipation of their um, major overhaul. Um, and then visited them again once I started working on this report. And the same happened with courts. So we went and visited courts when they were brand new and had their first space. And then by the time I was working on this report, courts had already grown and moved and had sort of redesigned to solve some of the problems they'd encountered in their previous space. So I was able to see both of those um, in transition. And we went to UC Annenberg. They had an innovation lab there the innovation space at Arizona State, so these were at schools of journalism, and Google, and, but we went to the New York offices and the, the California offices, the sort of main headquarters, the campus there, and uh, visited Facebook, uh, Missouri, School of Journalism, their, their lab, and I think, I think that was it initially.
1: You know, years ago, way back when Vox started out, we had Yuri Victor in studio and we interviewed him. And one of his jobs was actually sort of designing their initial space here in Washington, D.C. And, you know, he was really big. I remember talking about creating collaborative spaces where you would have, you know, reporters sitting next to data reporters or, or programmers, you know, so that they would be able to coordinate not only what they're covering, but but the way they're going to tell it in a digital story. And so this idea, you know, is really kind of fascinating, this idea of creating a newsroom from the ground up that's designed around collaboration. But, you know, kind of what shoots, I mean, you talk about that a little bit, but you also, in the story you wrote for API, you also talk about, you know, older newsrooms just sort of changing the way that they've traditionally done things. So when we talk about sort of innovative design, is it just creating collaborative space or is it something more?
0: Oh, wow. No, I think it's a lot more than that. I mean, you hear, I mean, the collaboration aspect is important, but I I do think it's much more than that. I would say that the probably even more important than the collaboration aspect, or at least equal, equally important is the flexibility aspect and that is a whole different way of thinking about space, but that really informs how people practice and behave. And it's funny when we were first working with architects, and they're always using all of this sort of poetic language about the transformative power of space. And you know, we're all cynical journalists and we're kind of rolling our eyes and going, Yeah, yeah, okay. But then they they did it, and the space is transformative, and you start to see people behave differently, and you're like, ah, there's a, there's something to this. So I think the the flexibility aspect is really important, and I think another important part is the other thing I heard people talk about over and over again was more light, and that not just being an aesthetic feature, but one that is about morale. And about I, I think it's even almost a metaphor for what journalism is about, shining light into, you know, dark corners. That's one of the core missions. And so I, I think there are there are subtle aspects that a lot of these spaces that I've seen have built into their into their redesign. And that's more than about just getting people to sit closer together so they can work together. I mean that's a given now I think, but I think there's other things going on too.
1: And, you know, when I was working for uh, Federal News Radio, you know, during the Obama administration, the GSA, the General Services Administration, the federal agency that actually overlooks the properties that the federal government owns, they went into a whole big push to try to redesign federal offices. And, you know, we're talking like, you know, old, old buildings or, you know, these big cavernous hallways, uh, you know, everybody has an office. And, and, you know, there was some pushback against it, but there was also... You know, GSA did it with their own headquarters. They they created these, you know, pods where people sort of uh, worked and collaborated together. They, you know, you talk about flexibility, this ability to, you know, get up and have meeting spaces that were nearby, having light, big windows, big open spaces that sort of changed the feel of the building so that it wasn't so much imposing, but it was actually kind of a pleasant place to work. Is is that kind of what you're talking about flexibility that the space isn't just one thing it isn't just a series of offices or or cubicles but something Yes.
0: Like... Well, a part of it is that I'm actually really particularly fascinated by this aspect because there are all these theories and in innovation about how people approach objects and spaces when things have assigned sort of parameters then people tend to only think of it in the context of the assigned parameters. So when you have furniture that's movable, when you have spaces that are not designated spaces, now of course, there are some like studios and things that have to be specific to a particular activity, but the more you move away from having spaces being assigned spaces to a particular activity, the more it forces the people who are using them to use their imaginations in the space. and if i hadn't seen this with my own eyes in action i would still be rolling my eyes but it actually works and there's uh, i remember talking with amy kovac ashley at api about the play aspect and i think we mentioned it in the story too there's this you know, movement in parenting where, you know, you don't give a child a toy that has a prescribed function because then they don't, they don't use their imagination. So it's similar to that that sort of aspect, but with working with your colleagues and employees.
1: Let's sort of backtrack a little bit. What is in general wrong or, or sort of counterproductive about maybe the traditional news spaces that, that we've seen?
0: Well, one, they reflect a way of practice that for the most part no longer exists and not just in the journalism industry but the way people sort of their relationship to work across industry so it's not just the news industry that is affected but i think in particular in news a lot of real estate given over to cubicles which are i i heard uh, editors again and again talk about like the things that they hated about their old newsrooms. One, you know, the lack of light, of course, but they would describe these as these crazy little hovels and little warrens. And I mean, industry as a whole has moved away from that sort of cubicle model anyway. But if you think about newsrooms, journalists aren't often at their desks and because they're out reporting. And the idea that you would have all of this real estate given over to row after row of mostly empty desks. And then when you add downsizing to that, that, that's a kind of a morale downer when you see, you know, an acre of <laughs> empty chairs, you know, in a, in a really big, you know, like a New York Times newsroom. And, and when that space can be given over to all of these sort of flexible, movable spaces that people
1: can come and go. Again, because a lot of my experiences in covering the federal government, and we wrote a lot about these sort of open office, office designs. And I remember one of the things they were talking about is if part of part of the things that, that they had to promote, you know, people coming to work for the federal government was like uh, the ability to telework. And, you know, if you've got a, a significant segment of your staff, you know, like journalists who aren't in the office all the time, not at their desks, then that kind of frees up some desks and and maybe even frees up how much space you actually need. So, you know, one of the strategies is this thing called hoteling, where you have dedicated bank of desks for people who sometimes work in the office and sometimes don't. And you end up requiring, you know, fewer resources, and it takes up less space. And then that opens up space for other things, if that's what you want to do. But, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned the thing about downsizing. You know, is this... The fact that so many newsrooms are shrinking or have been shrinking, you know, over the the last 10 years, I mean, is this creating more opportunities for this sort of redesign and rethinking about how we do our spaces?
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I and, and also, I mean, downsizing is a solution to a problem, but it's also an opportunity. I was thinking about one of the newsrooms that we talked to, the Virginian pilot, and... They closed their bureaus, downsized from 300 to 100, which is dramatic, but also is typical of, a lot of what a lot of newsrooms have had to do across the country. So they were bringing everybody together in one place because these bureaus were off-site. So it be- also became an opportunity for collaboration, and the sort of redesign was able to help facilitate that. And it's funny, the open space you know, debate is is a big issue. And I don't think people shouldn't confuse creating flexible collaborative spaces and getting rid of lots of closed offices for what has been, you know, decried as sort of, you know, the The terrible sort of technology, sort of Silicon Valley solution, having these sort of big loft-like spaces where everybody sits shoulder to shoulder, in a big, you know, in a big vast room, and and that's that's not what we're talking about when we talk about these flexible, more open, collaborative spaces, Um, because in fact there's lots of little rooms and little um, huddle spaces, and it's about having that mixed use flexible space and movable furniture people can still have privacy but it's it's like you said not just having sort of this wasted rigid you know one use desk space that doesn't meet all the needs of a of an employee throughout the day
1: you know i assume you know you kind of alluded to this the, the pushback against this open space design i assume that you saw that i think it was the wall street journal that did a story a few months back about it was sort of a backlash against open space design that people were complaining that you know it was too loud, they couldn't concentrate, they missed their offices where they could have a degree of privacy. Is that something you would heard about or you know, have you thought oh about it? Oh my gosh,
0: it? yes. I've seen that article or that version of that article lots of times and it was funny when I was um, interviewing people, every, I think every one of them said, as soon as we started talking about the redesign, one of my employees sent me... That or a version of that, you know, article, and there are several of them um, floating out there. And I think that the uh, one of the architects that we worked with, um, Tom Price, who who's at Strata, who's the firm that worked at our Media Innovation Center here um, at WVU, talked about that balance of sort of private time and. You know, he called it collision space, you know, creating a lot of opportunities for people to interact with each other. Again, not in prescribed ways, but just lots of different kinds of spaces. So you have to have a place where people can get away. In fact, I think that was one of the things that Quartz really did differently in their, their first space was sort of more of that shoulder-to-shoulder open newsroom where they had publishers sitting with advertisers sitting with reporters. And then they only had a couple of spaces off to the side where people could get away. And that they realized in their relocation and their remodel that they needed more of those sort of huddle spaces. And I love their—I don't know if you've seen their, their no. new space— it's very home-like. There's like all of these, there's sort of different rooms that there's like a library and there's a, this really cool, you know, maker space. And they have this little space in the back where all the light is that they call the garden. And then there's like the coffee shop. So it's, it's lots of little spaces plus the plenty of these little conference rooms that where people can, can get away as well. So it's an open collaborative space without, you know, this sort of cubicle assigned seating. But there's also all these other little creative spaces to break away and, you know, hold meetings or be by yourself or take calls or all those things that people need privacy.
1: I haven't seen the Quartz new space. I haven't seen the, the Washington Post, although I've seen many pictures of it. And it's like every time I see a picture of the Washington Post newsroom, it's always something different. You know, it's like one at one point it looks like an office, at one point it looks like a shopping mall, another looks like a library. (laughs) It likes lots of it, it's like the feel of it is so so different. It doesn't seem like a a news space, and it's clear that the people there appear to be comfortable. I mean, they're not going to (laughs) publish photos of people who aren't comfortable, obviously. Uh, But you know, and I've heard from people at the post that they're really they really like the new design, so you know. if anything, it's it's nice to see actually somebody thinking about this, this idea of putting some thought around, you know, how do we interact? How do we work together? That it's not always just about, you know, what's in your head and what you're writing and what you're saying and who you're talking to, but it's also kind of about the environment and the way that you interact with people. Putting that sort of thinking in, that de- in the design work I think is great.
0: I love comparing the Washington Post remodel to the Quartz remodel because to me there are sort of – on, well, they're not on different sides of a spectrum. They're like in different universes, actually. <laughs> and But it's because they're different newsrooms. And I love how their remodels completely reflect their, their culture. So the Washington Post remodel is exquisite, and it's ambitious, and it's Serious, and it's all the things that the Washington Post is. It's also very, very elegant, and I mean, it's it's really an extraordinary um, remodel. And the um, the what they call the nerve center has a lot of the feel of sort of the classical newsroom. So, but then it's got all of these others, just really beautiful breakaway spaces and conference rooms that are really creative, and and there's a lot of Sort of homage to the legacy of the Washington Post that's that's interpreted in the design. So there is gravitas in the Washington Post space, and you feel it moving through it.
1: Yeah, then, and I've, go on.
0: Well, I was just going to say, go then quartz is very lo-fi and ironic and playful and. I mean, I don't want to say it's not serious, because it's it's not, it's not in any way frivolous, but it's just, it doesn't take itself quite as seriously. That is so typical of sort of a more startup kind of model. They're very heads down in their work. The, you know, the interpretation of the materials are very natural and, um, you know, like using plywood and these constructions, which you can really only get away with that kind of lo-fi design you know if you're not trying too hard and if you're really confident in being sort of the upstart innovative you know talent that uh, that they are so um, I don't know I just I, I love that they're that they're so different and unique in their spaces and also so representative of sort of the culture and personality of those different newsrooms.
1: Okay, but, but the, the Quartz one isn't like Slugline from House of Cards. It's not like a coffee bar with, with like big fluffy chairs, right? No,
0: no. I mean, it's not, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. One of the things, too, is when we went to these, you know, we went to Google and Facebook, and actually what's interesting is I, I think now about, you know, the, the increased tensions in journalism with these sort of technology giants and there was a sort of rush to adopt and borrow and replicate all of these things. And I'm so glad that, you know, journalists, you know, retained their sort of core practicality and cynicism and didn't, didn't adopt some of the sort of caricatures, you know, of, uh, Silicon Valley. And, um, Yeah, which, you know, which are some of those sort of more silly expressions of that, like the, I I mean, all of that stuff is spoofed now and, uh, and all of these shows and.
1: So so tell me, tell me about the, uh, the Media Innovation Center at Reed College. What, what can people expect when they go there? You know, what's the space like? What is it you're, you're, you're doing there?
0: We have a... Well, we're trying to do media innovation. We teach classes. We've got... We have all kinds of things going on. It's a very bustling, active, mixed-use space. And um, we hold a lot of events there. We just did a hackathon event, actually, with API um, a few weeks ago. It's very open, but there's these, but there's rooms that are specialized spaces. And um, we have a an open sort of visible recording studio. We have a mixed reality studio. We have a AR, VR lab. We have a maker space, which is like a garage workshop. We have a, we have a shared sort of, you know, like you were talking about, hoteling. We call it our fishbowl, which is partly because it's clear and, you know, you can see into it, but also sort of a nod to the teaching hospital model. And when, you know, doctors and nurses are not in rooms with their patients, they're in a space called the fishbowl. So we just you dubbed it that. And there's lockers there. There's no fixed, you know, desk. It's our nerve center at the Media Innovation Center. The what was supposed to be the corner office with, you know, glass, you know, walled floor to ceiling glass views. We were like, no, we're not gonna do offices, private offices over here. So we turn that into a conference room that we called our we call our blue sky room. And it's you see it right when you come in the door. It's one of the most coveted spaces for people to meet and it's you know, we do conferencing in there and our people just break away and use that space. We have these little huddle spaces that are always full and also one the only there's only one bookable space in our Innovation Center and that's the Blue Sky Room. Everything else is sort of first come first serve because we just really want it to be open in that way. We have faculty and students from across the campus and different disciplines that, that use the space. All of that sort of eye rolling, you know, uh, language that the architects had about collision space and collaboration has absolutely happened in the space and it's been kind of cool. It, it changes teaching. So that's an example of how, I mean, I know this isn't necessarily about education, but just an example of how spaces change how people behave. Because all of the spaces are open and accessible, we have had people join classes in session. And that does not happen in an an ordinary, you know, classroom. And so that the classroom itself becomes a collaboration space. And anyway, it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and what's kind of nice about that is that maybe the students, as they go out into the the job, you know, the job world and, and, you know, hopefully get in some newsrooms, are going to be looking for for opportunities like this, for for spaces to work in like this. So that would be good. Oh, I hope so.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So as we sort of wrap up here, I I did want to ask you, you know, For somebody who has, like, an old, you know, staid, you know, traditional newsroom, you know, how do you start the process to make that transition?
0: You don't have to have the budget of the Washington Post
1: to make changes.
0: We looked at newsrooms that did sort of much more modest renovations. And, well, one was the, I don't remember which newsroom it was, but the first thing they did was just declutter and made people get rid of all of their stuff. And... That's transformative in and of itself. And I think when you're a newsroom that's trying to look away from the past and toward the future, getting rid of all those old files and all this sort of baggage that we've lugged around is, I think, is a, is a first step um, that a newsroom can do. I think restructuring structuring you know, getting rid of cubicles, restructuring spaces so that they become collaborative spaces. You know, people have transformed what were formerly sort of these only, you know, bookable conference rooms into more like lounge spaces. And then suddenly they see them used, you know, throughout the day instead of just for that, you know, one, you know, meeting once a week and bringing food into the offices, like making that a part of the having space for food. And even if that's just, you know, not everybody can afford, you know, Google's cafe, but bowls of M&Ms and pretzels and energy bars are part of a sort of, I think community building food is community building. And so I think that's one of the things I've seen newsrooms do. I'm trying to think what else, you know, just fresh paint, you know, part of that decluttering (laughs) and sort of just, Some of that, um, you know, makes a difference. And I know I have this thing now where I like want to I want to go do makeovers of little newsrooms. That's like (laughs) I want to do that as my hobby.
1: (laughs) That would be fun, I think. Dana, thank you for, for this conversation. This is this is great.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of It's All Journalism. Before I wrap up. I wanted to thank the American Press Institute again for helping us set up this interview with Dana Kester. If you're not familiar with API, visit their website, AmericanPressInstitute.org. You'll find a whole bunch of research and tips about making journalism better. Be sure to sign up for their daily email newsletter, too. I subscribe, and that's where I get a lot of great ideas for topics to discuss on the podcast. If you listen to my interview with Rob Weinberg of The Correspondent, you'll notice that the format was a little different than our typical podcasts. I won't go into all of the, the details as to why we did that, but we had some technical issues with the audio that made us present it as a produced piece with linking narration rather than a, as a conversation, which is what we usually do. And in my wrap-up of that episode, when I sort of explained this, I, I invited readers to uh, you know, give us some feedback and, and let us know what they thought. So I did receive an email, and I, and I wanted to read the email to you. Hello to my audio files at IAJ. Long-time listener, first-time newsletter subscriber. Uh, This is my aside. Yes, he subscribed to our newsletter. Go ahead to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link at the top of the page, and subscribe. Anyway, back into the email. As a media visual journalist with my regional paper, the Rockford, Illinois Register Star, I value the regular media shop talk from IAJ. In response to Michael's question about the show's format, I really like his idea of interstitial narration to bridge different segments and ideas of the show. It worked very well in the latest episode. I bet you record a lot of interesting information that may not make the final cut. So this format will allow you to create a more clear and concise show while providing that information, informative context for the subject at hand that we don't often get from the extemporaneous interview. All the best, Scott Yates, Rockford, Illinois. So this was the only email that we received in the week. Uh, which is not necessarily unusual because, you know, <laughs> this is podcasting. It, you know, sometimes you throw these things out there. You 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 tr- you you hope to get somebody to, to respond. The only other person who responded was actually my brother, who said to me, "No, no, I want you to keep the podcast the old way, just have conversations." So anyway, I reached out to Scott and asked him to come onto the podcast, and we just have sort of a little talk about our format, his ideas for our format, and we'll just just talk about it. Welcome to the podcast, Scott.
2: It's great to be here, Michael. And uh, reading my letter, you made me sound really good.
1: Like I said, we, we don't get a ton of comments about this podcast, even when we we ask people to re, to respond to us. I think uh, we ran a, a survey once on our newsletter, and we got one response. So this is a, a level of uh, interaction with my with our listeners that I, I'm pretty used to. But I, I liked your email, and, and I thought it had a really good, you know, perspective. Now you said you're a multimedia journalist. What is it you do in your job?
2: So I am the only visual journalist here at the Register Star. We're trying to hire our latest director of visuals. Regardless, we're lucky here in that we're large enough that people have uh, get to specialize in their beats. But we're small enough that everyone needs to be at least conversational in multimedia production. So I'm kind of the go-to guy. People ask for tips and tricks on how to either snap a photo, how to record video and post it to our host, and now lately it's audio production. I myself am kind of learning on the fly, and it's a slow road, but I'm really excited to uh, delve into this audio world.
1: Yeah, well, welcome. It's, it's challenging, it's fun, and often can be very perplexing as to when things work and why, why they don't work. So do you listen to a lot of podcasts? I
2: do. I listen to several podcasts daily for some news. I have one for entertainment, and I listen to this one in particular for my weekly dose of shop talk.
1: Oh, cool! Well, I'm glad you found us. I'm I'm glad you're enjoying it. As far as like our format in our newsletter, where I also ran your your email, I, I one of the things I said is like I'd always been sort of trained. When you make a, a change in your presentation in a publication, you, you should explain to your readers why you did it. And so we had a we had a change last week because because of a technical issue. And so we we opted to do sort of a write around, you know, the, something we, we not necessarily would have done if that hadn't happened. But you know, it presented an opportunity. I am always looking for opportunities to improve the podcast format. is is something that you know is kind of a key element when you when you decide to do a podcast. And our podcast is, has, has certainly evolved. We, if you listen to the first you know, 100 episodes or so, we, we were much more conversational, a lot more. You know, we, we had episodes that typically went up to an hour and some that even went beyond that. But we, we sort of made a conscious decision a few years ago that sort of tightened things up. And uh, mostly how we do that is actually, in the recording process, have tighter interviews, try to be a little smarter about the questions we ask and, and that I don't futz around so much when I'm talking. Which uh, podcast in particular do you like? As
2: far as formats go, I I like conversational ones. When I, on the weekends, the conversational podcast called The Armchair Expert uh, by Dax Shepard just goes on for an hour or two, perhaps. And that one is nice for weekends when I have time to sit down with my cup of coffee and just stare out the window and listen to this goofball talk about some stuff. But in the in the mornings, uh, during the week, I've got to get ready for work. I got to take care of some chores. My dog needs to I'll walk. You know, all that good stuff. I don't have time to uh, just meditate on the <laughs> inanities of life. So I need to need to get my news. I need to know what's going on for the day. I need to be ready to talk about the headlines at work. And so, podcasts like. The New York Times, The Daily, NPR is up first. Those are just top notch, world class productions that give a lot of news, a lot of information very quickly. That's very valuable. I really enjoyed this conversation between you and me because I'm at the very beginning of this stage here at the Register Star. We, we haven't had a whole lot of conversations about making a, a podcast show specifically. We just know that this technology exists. We have the abilities with our smartphones to record audio. Now what do we do with this? So we're still in the the phase of the conversation like, do we just record audio clips of of the coach giving the post-game interview and throw that up in an embed on the article? Or do I take our reporters, do I go out with our reporters, record ambient audio record some pretty nice sound from the, the subjects at hand? And then do I bring all this back and then do a post-interview interview with our reporters and put that together? I've done a little bit of all of that already, and we're still trying to figure out how to work that into our daily workflow when everybody else has so many responsibilities.
1: Yeah, it takes a lot of time, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does,
2: yeah. But... Um, it's it's rewarding, I think, as a as a reader, as a news consumer myself. I, I do recognize the time it takes to put these things together, and I've even rewarded some outlets with my subscription money. So I try to bring that kind of sensibility to to my own work. What do I want to read that I would pay for, and that's the kind of work that I try to produce here.
1: Yeah, and that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on here, just to sort of get that listener perspective. And maybe also shed a little sort of light into our production process. One of the things you say in your, your email is more of this information, you know, interesting information that we might cut out. We actually don't do a lot of, a lot of editing. We don't take out a lot, of, a lot of stuff. And I know that there are podcasts that will record for an hour and then they'll edit down for 35 minutes. You know, for us, from a, like a production standpoint, this is only, this is something we're doing around the rest of our, our, our jobs. And so we don't necessarily have a whole lot of time to do that. So I I wanted you to come on and talk about, you know, sort of get your feedback, but, you know, also to encourage other people that if this is something, you know, that you'd like to hear us, you know, change our perspective, you know, change the way we present our our podcast, let us know. We've been doing this for over, you know, 300 episodes. Go ahead and and let us know, write to us at editor at itsalljournalism.com and uh we'll see what we do with this scott uh thanks for giving me a little bit of your time thanks for letting us know your opinion and, and helping us to try to improve what we're doing here
2: you're quite welcome anytime
1: it takes a lot of people to produce an episode of it's all journalism nicola grisco produced this episode amber healy wrote our web content nick dupre wrote our theme music amelia Brest helped with our booking Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.